0: This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week Podcast. I'm talking today to Michelle Laurie, who I'm sure most uh, Media Week people will be familiar with either via her books, her podcasts, her radio work or appearances on television. Michelle Laurie, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. You sound like a very busy person.
1: Yeah, sometimes up and down, you know,
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, look, we've got you today because you've got a new book out, CSI Told You Lies. Mm. Um, the titles just intrigue me, but uh, you haven't you've got to read far into the book till you sort of explain that, but you're talking about the TV show CSI?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I, I met the people first, though, at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine through my podcast, Australian True Crime. And the Institute is basically the mortuary and it's connected to the coroner's court. And they asked me to come and help them with a web series for their website a couple of years ago. And I just fell in love with them. They're such wonderful people, gorgeous people. I was talking about them all the time. And then my friend and business partner, Matthew Hardy, said to me, you should write a book. You should write a book about them. And he uh, he got the deal going, hooked up the deal and, and then here's the book. And whenever you talk to these people, they always have a grumble about CSI. And um, I was always like, yeah, righto, relax. I don't even watch it. (laughs) Um, But then I realized, oh, it's a thing. It's an issue in their line of work because it's affected the way that we, the public think about their work to the extent that in juries, you know, juries sort of don't always listen to their, their testimony properly. They, they don't always take it seriously because we think we know better sometimes or we think we can figure out forensic evidence ourselves. So it's actually a problem in the legal system,
0: would you believe? Yeah, so the, the thing is, I guess, to, to sum it up, it seems to be that CSI overestimates the accuracy of some um, forensic investigations.
1: Yeah, like you can't really tell the time of death, for example, um, the way they do on telly. DNA results don't really come back in an hour. Just things like that, and and I suppose most significantly, um, forensics people don't solve crimes. I mean, they're very specifically there to put this, try and work through this puzzle that they have uh, when they're presented with a person's remains, and they leave the crime fighting, the crime solving to the detectives. But they're doctors, and uh, they're very sensitively working with with the person's remains. So And it's very moving, actually, the way they think about their work and, um, yeah, they're very sweet people.
0: You talk in your introduction to the book, you write a little bit about um, how this sort of area has changed over the years, particularly with podcasting. You talk quite a bit about the impact of the Serial podcast.
1: Yeah. Well, also the way it and other podcasts sort of emboldened me uh, because I'd spent so many years in radio being told that that listeners don't have an attention span for anything longer than a couple of minutes, anything more in depth than the most basic conversation. And I understand that that is very specific to listening habits, you know, in certain environments. Um, so, you know, I have respect for that in terms of breakfast radio and, and those sorts of things, mind you, I mean, just a couple of days ago, I was, you know, on Kyle and Jack's show again, and I was on it, you know, nine twenty or something. And our break lasted for 15 minutes and we meandered around however many topics and we broke every rule in the book and, <laughs> you know, and it was brilliant. And it just, again, goes to show that entertainment works irrespective of the rules. And and I remember um, Irene Hume saying to Tim and Marty and I one day when we were in Sydney, because we used to broadcast out of Melbourne when we did drive. And then we went to Sydney and she was so fabulous because she just gave us such great feedback. We would, weren't used to getting any feedback. And then all of a sudden Renny sat us down and gave us so much feedback. And And one of the things she said to us was, you guys break every rule, but it works. And it was so wonderful to hear that. And I felt like, you know, just affirmed. So, you know, when it works, it works. But with podcasting, when listening to Serial, I realised that, yes, if it's good gear, people will listen and they will listen closely and they might even listen twice if to make sure they didn't miss anything, you know. So uh, it it was very influential, obviously. But prior to that, it was actually Richard Feidler's conversations that got me interested in podcasting. Because when I listened in Brisbane to that show when it was on at midday, you know, it was just my favourite show. And then I moved back to Melbourne, I I realised I could still listen to it through podcasting, but I didn't know what podcasting was. I Had to figure out how to listen to podcasts, and that got me interested in the medium. That was in 2011.
0: I want to talk to you a little bit more about podcasting before I let you go today. But um, but back to the book, you also talk in that intro about how you first met Emily Webb. Yeah. Who's had a big influence on what you do. Yeah,
1: yeah well, sorry, I've got to go back to podcasting again briefly. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so she, uh, the first podcast I did starting from 2011 was called The Nitty Gritty Committee. And that was just a way of, again, exploring this idea of longer conversations because, um. It, it all started with Manu, funnily enough, because every year they would come to us in radio and say, Okay, it's my kitchen rules. H- which one do you want, Pete or Manu? And I would crack the shits every year and go, Oh, Christ, do we really have to do it again? Um, we have the same conversation every year about this show. Uh, yes, you have to do it. You know, Channel 7's bought this many ads or whatever, you have to do it. And uh, so I'd go, Manu. And uh, you know, we just have to have the same conversation. you've got three minutes with Manu. and, um, who's lovely, but it's just the same conversation. So we did Manu, and then I'm driving home, and I heard Manu on the ABC, and they had forty five minutes, and it was a revelation. It was the most wonderful conversation I found out so much about Manu. He wanted to be a clown when he was a young man. He like a Cirque du Soleil clown. he was he went to clown school. It was his passion. Uh, It was amazing. And then by the time he graduated, though, clowning was kind of on the wane and there weren't that many clown gigs. And so uh, it was heartbreaking for him. And he just went and had to go and work in his uncle's kitchen just for something to do to kind of (laughs) figure out his life. And then this cracked open this whole new life for him and he's ended up being Manu. And I'm thinking, God, this is amazing. This is what happens when you get to have longer conversations. So I started this podcast called The Nitty Gritty Committee, where I just talked to anyone I thought was interesting. And because of my, where my interests lay, it kind of moved more and more towards true crime. And then I went looking for a true crime writer in my vicinity and I found Emily Webb and invited her to come in and have a chat with me. And by the end of that first hour, I said, hey, would you ever think about doing it like a true crime podcast? She said yes, and so that was that, and that was in 2016. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, and this is it. And I, I just really liked her, uh, her attitude toward victims. She was always very victim centric. She was always very focused on the victim, and always sort of created this their story first, you know, or made me very aware in her books of of them as a person, their family. Really painted the picture of them in the story. I liked that.
0: Um. Couple of couple of chapters in the book. You, now you start. I think it might be in the first chapter. Even it's called the Flinders Street Extension, and that's <laughs> yeah. actually where the Melbourne Coroner it or was or was still is. Yes.
1: No, it was. That was the um, old building, and um, it was very. It was crook. It was really <sighs> crook. It was. Uh, so, but the older detectives, you, Ron idalls Charlie Bazina, those guys. When they started, it was still in the Flinders Street extension. So, whenever you talk to them, uh, Roland Leg, those old boys, they will reference back in the extension. And I became more and more fascinated with the extension. <laughs> and uh, and but the, and and more so because when you Google it, you can't find anything about the extension, and you certainly can't find any photos of the extension. So. It was like a unicorn. I I became aware that, oh, nobody, no one official wants you to know about the extension because it was so bad. (laughs) And then I found someone who worked there who said, oh, I've got some photos and we have some photos in the book. Yeah, the extension was bad. The extension was like the delivery area, if you will, Mm. was outdoors, was a driveway. So from Spencer Street, a major street in the city in Melbourne, you could see bodies being loaded in and out of the mortuary and the, the reception area where families were waiting for the inquest. um, You know, you could hear the sounds of the drills and the machinery of the, uh, you know, autopsies. You could smell the smells and then people would come out with, with cans of air freshener and spray them around the waiting area. Um, Roland Legg, the detective, Said, called it a house of horrors, Michelle. It was a house of horrors. It was unbelievable. Compared to now where this facility is like world-leading, incredible, where they actually didn't have to change anything for COVID. They were already so ahead of, you know, everything. Um, oh, the, the extension. It's like a movie.
0: I, I haven't read the whole book, but I'm working my way through it. The I was just fascinated by the David Hooks chapter. Because I was, uh, I mean, I'm from Melbourne. Um, I grew up, I went to that famous MCG cricket match where he hit all his fours in succession off Tony Gregg. Yes. Um, I was a listener to his 3AW radio show. And, you know, I, like much the rest of Australia, was stunned by his sudden passing. Okay. And that detail you go into, it's its fascinating. It reads like a and a, a sort of police report with so much detail and... But a very colourful one, but um, tell me a little bit about that.
1: Well, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I had to do a lot of research into the cricket side of things because I don't know anything about <laughs> cricket. So actually, I was really lucky because Charlie Bazzina was the lead detective on that case and Charlie and I are good friends and he is a great mentor to me and he helps me out a lot. So, and he has a memory like a steel trap and he, he keeps everything. So he had all of his reports and everything still so that was the easy part the hard part for me was yeah researching the cricket and and i'm just trying to understand that and make that make sense to people like you people who who love cricket um fortunately my you know matthew hardy my business partner loves cricket and has a photograph of himself as a small small child with a David Hooks t-shirt on wow. and kiss makeup, which is a whole other story. <laughs> but um, so that helped. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's an interesting chapter because for a lot of reasons. There are a lot of points made in there, such as the fact that there are about 40 eyewitnesses to what happened and yet all of them gave different accounts. So th- that's about human memory. That's a great insight into the fact that we all think that our memory is infallible when in fact it's not and um, we increasingly are aware of that the evidence that memories eyewitnesses aren't the perfect things that we think they are also that was back when one punch can kill was not a thing and Charlie was trying to establish it as a thing he was trying to get the first ever conviction um, for manslaughter for a one punch killing because the young man who was a bouncer was a kickboxer he'd had a lot of training was a champion uh, martial artist but also Charlie developed a great relationship with that young man and with his father and had a lot of empathy for them because he was a bouncer but he had never been given any training as to how to de-escalate situations without falling back on those skills Uh, and now you know that is mandatory in in these venues and Charlie made the point that as police they were trained to do that, to de-escalate using words, you know, using interpersonal skills, but these young men were not given that training. But also, the autopsy had to be carried out uh, at the same time as the harvesting—that's the word that's used. It's not very nice of D- David Hooks's organs because Hooks was very passionate about donating his organs after death. So that was groundbreaking as well. And that had to be negotiated by Charlie. And fortunately, he is just the most popular, wonderful man who had relationships everywhere. Everyone loves Charlie. So he was able to, under all that pressure, the media pressure, the family pressure, he was able to negotiate a deal, basically, at the hospital between the you know, the mortuary, the coroner, the family, the hospital, everybody, to have this procedure carried out there at the hospital, uh, it's quite an extraordinary story. Unfortunately, he was unable to get the conviction, though he's still spewing as coppers spew (sighs) for the rest of their lives about these failures, no matter how many wins they get, he's still spewing he was unable to get that guilty
0: conviction. Yeah, reading that chapter, it gives you... It gives you an insight into all the different uh, stages of a of a of a of a crime, doesn't it? You know the mm. the setup, what happens, what happens immediately after, you know the subsequent case, and 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 in this one, the um the the young Bowser and his family suffered greatly apart from the what they were going to be put through by the punishment.
1: Absolutely, their house was burnt down. Fortunately, they had moved out. It didn't seem fortunate at the time because of the mm. harassment that they suffered. They actually, I mean, he lived at home with his parents still and his grandparents lived there as well. Very tight-knit, sweet family. Um, you know, it was a mistake. It was a terrible, terrible thing that happened to everybody. But, yes, they were hounded out of their home and then not long after that the, the home was actually burnt to the ground. So, yes, it was a terrible story all the way around. And, and of course, then there was the, uh, the Australian story episode that aired where a young woman talked about the fact that she and David were in a relationship. She believed they were going to have a baby. Um, She talked about him being the love of her life. And the following day, half a dozen other women came forward to say they believed they were the love of his life. All of this happened just prior to the case as well of going to court. So um, Charlie was of the belief that the profile of David Hooks being a sort of a, you know, very confident media guy who'd had a few media storms coming to the defense of Shane Warne no less. Um, not long before all of that too. You know, he was a he was a sort of mouthy guy in the media. Charlie feels as though that may have played into things in the jury room that they might have thought he was being a smart ass in the pub. Not that that obviously, you know, means he should have been No. Yeah, yeah. You know, it should have led to anything. but but yeah, that um Charlie feels as though all of well, speaking for Charlie which I shouldn't but yeah that, that may have played into things in the jury room
0: uh the rest of the book you might the, the, well, the, are they all because I haven't read all the other chapters but they're they're all sort of cases or or tragedies people would be pretty familiar with i think wouldn't they they were relatively so. big news stories
1: yeah or although i mean there's a chapter there with um dr richard bassett who's an odontologist he he is the guy who identifies people through their dental records through their teeth and so specifically he and i talk about the two big you know moments in his life so far have been the tsunami the boxing day tsunami and the black saturday fires so he's the guy who'll be there for months identifying teeth looking, you know, through dental records. Uh, But also he then sort of goes on to talk about a case that's really stayed with him where he just happened to be Johnny on the spot at work one day when the police called and said, we need someone to come with us uh, and help us exhume some remains in the bush. A guy has admitted to killing his wife and he's told us where he's buried her. And Richard said he just volunteered I'll come, I'll do it. And uh, it's not normally his go, obviously. And he talks a lot about that, about the impact of that, of uncovering this woman who, you know, had, she'd only been dead sort of 24 hours and uncovering this perfect, this lady who looked like she was sleeping and um, the profound effect he had that had on him. And, the thing is that she had been killed by her husband. She had been subjected to domestic violence for many, many, many years. And it's a really powerful story because the way he talks about her is so tender and so gentle and so moving. And it makes, made me think about the brutality with which her husband had treated her. And he, the husband subsequently successfully argued provocation in court, which has since been outlawed. You can't use that as defense anymore. And it just made me think, I don't think that guy thinks about her as often as Richard does, you know. Mm. So there's there's, there's, there's there's shades. There's different kinds of stories. But uh, permission from all the families and in most cases the families worked with me to tell the stories. Eurydice Dixon's father chose not to work with me but gave me his permission and and sent me a number of emails that um, provided some really fascinating and beautiful insights into things. The Maslins, Rin and Maz from Perth worked very closely with me on the chapter about their, their children on MH17, um, and Dr. David Ranson, who went to the Netherlands to work on the victim identification there. Uh, so, yeah, there's, there's lots, of, lots of different layers and levels, I think. And I think every chapter has a, a, a real personality all its own that sort of feeds off the families and off the investigators and off, off the people, you know?
0: Tell me a little bit about your writing process. You've written, a f- what, four books now? Was this number five? I can't um, remember.
1: I think it's five There's a few maybe. anyway.
0: Yeah. But um, what, what's your writing process?
1: I was somewhat interrupted this time <laughs> by uh, lockdown and having a 10-year-old either side of me wanting toasted sandwiches every 15 <laughs> minutes. Um, but I tend to, certainly in this case, tended to write, really focus on a chapter at a time because I really felt like I needed to be, you know, really um, locked into a story at a time for a lot of reasons, Um, apart from the Maslins, because the Maslins, I I tended to write bits and send them to them and then they would take a while to get back to me usually. So I just had to wait it out and hope that I hadn't really hurt them. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I just had to wait for them to get back to me. Uh, But the others I would really just lock into one chapter at a time, one story at a time, researching and back and forth, back and forth with the the people involved until I felt like I'd really locked it down and really finished it. And then I'd move on to the next one. But I enjoy the research a lot. It's just a lot of cross-referencing with uh, news stories and Digging, digging, and then referencing them back with the investigators, with the families, their recollections. Uh, Yeah, just digging, digging. I I, I would like to have been able to go to more places, but, of course, that was impossible. I I was going to talk about um, Daniel Morecambe's case because the lady at Vifam called Dadna was the lady who who, um, positively identified Daniel's remains. She was sent some bone material and she was the lady who positively um identified his dna but i want really want to go and see bruce and um denise because i have a relationship with them but i i was not able to get up there so maybe next time
0: are you a digital first person do you try and keep all your note taking digitally or do you handwrite some of your stuff
1: yeah a bit of both but yeah it's mainly digital um yeah, mainly digital. Trying to keep, but but messy as hell. Like really, <laughs> really like double. Oh, bad. I'm trying. I'm constant. But just before I spoke to you, I was I was googling our software actually again. Like trying to figure out for the next one. Trying to figure out how to take better care of of my notes. It's, it's messy, but yeah, gets there.
0: Yeah, but personally, I find. It- it's just I love writing, and I love writing physically, notebooks and that. But then, do you've got you? To I'm too tra- messy. No, but then you've got to transfer it all, and it's sort of double handling. So
1: yeah, and I'm too messy, so... and I and I've got so <laughs> many notebooks, like so many, right.
0: and
1: I forget where things are. And but it, I'm just messy. There is no, I'm messy. Yeah, disastrous.
0: The um, is it because this is part of your? I mean, I hate to sort of commercialize it, but you've got a a brand, a business, so you have to make a living, don't you? Yeah. This this is part of all that, I guess. Yeah. Are are books sort of an equal part of, you know, also your podcasting, your radio work and maybe some of your TV or how do they fit into the?
1: I have to say, up until, honestly, up until Matthew started taking care of the book side of things, they were never they never made me any money. Like they used to be, I remember Catherine Devaney saying to me a million years ago, books are for uh, vanity. You don't make money out of books. Books are just to have something on your shelf with your name on them. And I always treated it that way. Uh, I always treated it like, in fact, up until this one, I sort of decided, oh, I'm not writing books anymore. They're just too much work and you don't make any money. They take too much time. And I was sort of was at a place in my life where I thought, you know, with the kids and stuff, I just thought, I just don't have time anymore to work unless it's making enough money, you know, because I, because I didn't want to, I couldn't do breakfast radio anymore. I was too tired by it. And I was trying to figure out that balance between time and, you know, money. And I just wanted to have some more time back in my life. And I wanted to um, work smarter, not harder, all that. And I I was thinking books are not smarter. (laughs) too much work but then when I handed the book side of my life over to Matthew uh it changed so now now I'm it's more it's it's more worth it to be honest um yeah it's more lucrative to me now so now books are and writing is definitely more part of my income which is great it's more worth it um and I'm feeling more valued for it which is great But I've never struggled, I'm lucky, I've never struggled to make an income out of my work. Even the podcasting is um, enough, lucrative enough. I don't have massive financial expectations. I I really don't. I'm quite happy not to make breakfast radio money. That doesn't bother me. Uh, You know, I'm really happy to just to, to make enough money. The kids and I have a good lifestyle. We live reasonably we're not trying to you know be uh live a lavish lifestyle we're really happy just where we're at and yeah so I, i've never i'm not struggling to make enough money i don't know how to how to have this conversation but yeah, you know sure yeah, we're but good. what
0: i was getting at i guess is that this topic in particular it does feed into your other work it, it helps it. your podcast yeah your podcast can help this it makes sense in your overall scheme.
1: It really does. Yeah, yeah. It all it all works together. And for the most part, yeah, I'm not overworked anymore. I was for a while, yeah. But for, yeah, for the most part, it's all just working together nicely. And now we have this production company going, and I can work for other people and with other people, and can work with not for profits. We're working for with um, Soldier On soon, making a podcast with them. So that's My goal is to do more work with not-for-profits. That makes me happy. And, um, yeah, seems to be all working in together.
0: Sure. Last little thing on the writing because I I like hearing feedback from how other people do it. But with the family and demands, um, early morning and late night could be productive times. Not for me. Can you you work those hours or do you need to? Be in a nine
1: to five sort of. Oh, I can't do nine to five. But Andrew Rule says that he's like, well, you know, you just <laughs> got to get up earlier. And I'm like, shut up, you! No, I'm not getting up. I'm not an early morning person. But that's what he reckons. He he, when his kids were little, um, he used to just get up a few hours earlier and get it done earlier in the morning. I think everyone. I think you just have to find your own discipline. I think everyone, you know, has a different way of doing it. But but it's never easy, and you have to stick with it um so that was his thing you have to get up before everyone and get your hours in early for me i i have to i i have to do it as soon as i've dropped the kids off it has to be my first sort of thing in the morning i have to get it done you know by sort of one or two i i just have to get it done while they're at school i mean Hmm. yeah when they're around nothing 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 gets done it's just uh, yeah, so that, but I, my, my discipline is I try and write a thousand words a day and that's because okay. when I got my first book deal, I didn't know how to write a book, so I Googled it, how do you write a book? <laughs> and the first thing that came up was Hemingway and I thought, well, he would know. And he he's he wrote a thousand words a day and he said, even if they're a thousand shit words, just make sure you write a thousand words a day. And I have lived by that for however many years I've been writing books, about 10 or 11, and that's what I do, a thousand words a day.
0: Yeah, you've just got to do it. Yeah, it, uh, um, that's good. Cool. What was I going to ask you? One more thing: oh, the is the deadline your friend? Is that a bit of a motivator, or or are you good even without a deadline?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty good without a deadline. I mean, you know, having been self employed and stuff, self motivated for nearly thirty years now, um, you know, yeah, I'm used to just working all. I just work all the time. I like to work. I work seven days a week. I get up. I work. I I feel a bit lost if I'm not working. So, uh, yeah, I, every day I think, okay, what am I working on? Yeah. So yeah. I don't. I don't need a deadline. I don't need to be pushed to work.
0: Well, we've got you. Let's hear a little bit about you, where you are with podcasting. Now you've got this company, Smartfella. Yeah. Which is you and Matthew. Yeah. Now your big ticket item is, of course, the um, Australian crime. Australian true crime. Yeah. Australian true crime. Now there's. There's quite a few crime podcasts out there now, aren't there? Yeah. You, yours has been going for a while. What are you up to now? Do you know what?
1: As in it? what, downloads or yeah, no, episodes? No, the
0: episodes, yeah. You,
1: I don't know, 200 been, and something. In, wow.
0: It's amazing.
1: Because it's weekly and it's been going since um, the beginning of 2017. So. Yeah.
0: And it's basically a different story every episode.
1: It is, and it's an uh, interview every episode. So it's generally um, either a victim of crime or a family member of a victim of crime, an investigator, uh, you know, somebody like that uh, every episode. So uh, it's Missing Persons Week this week, so we've got a few missing persons cases around the place. We've got a few people involved in the book around, you know, this period of time. Um, so, yeah, it's great and you just meet the the best people um you know survivors of crime are just people who are really uh stripped back and open and honest people you're just really meeting people you know right where they are and these days people come to us generally uh contact us and say that they want to come on the show and tell their story so that's great and it's a very rewarding. We both love doing it. I love editing. I edit it usually, and I really enjoy editing. I, I've been through some very crappy times of editing, but um, then I went to Andy Ma, the, the king of, of radio editing. And uh, he taught me how to edit properly. I went and sat at his flat for a couple of days and he taught me how to use pro tools. And that was really exciting. And so, yeah, we love it. And, and then I wanted to see if I could make anything else successful, you know, in another genre. So we launched Calm Your Farm earlier this this year, which came out of COVID of me noticing that people were really talking about mental health for the first time I thought around the place, saying, how are you? And then the other person would go, oh, not good. Or I'm all right today, but last Tuesday, oh, not good. And then they'd talk about really what they were doing to cope. And obviously right now people are talking about that a lot too. So I started up Calm Your Farm, short daily, podcast where people talk about how they really cope in t- in hard times and it's not about banana bread or anything like that it's about real stuff and <laughs> so that's been really successful that's exciting we're launching Nadia Bocchetti's podcast soon um Matthew Hardy and Lawrence Mooney's Saturday Afternoon Fever is a co-production with Listener launched today oh no yesterday which is excellent hilarious so uh yeah Welcome to Patchworks, come over to us. So it's, it's exciting, it's fun, it's given me the joy back of broadcasting. It's good times.
0: On Australian True Crime, so it's you and Emily, are You. Yep. do you have a researcher? Do you have someone? some people working with you?
1: No, it is just us. Just the two of you. It's always been just the two of us, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, because you, the pressure's on though, isn't it? So you need to be, you obviously got to be working ahead and always planning and, okay, what are we doing? you you yes. Know, to make yep. those, to keep it weekly, because that's one of the secrets, isn't it? To always be there. Oh, my God.
1: Know? There are times, believe me. Oh, God. Yeah. It's, it's huge pressure. And <laughs> I mean, we've, you know, Emily's always had a day job. Mm. Um, I had day jobs until quite recently, or maybe a year ago. I don't know. But yeah, it's full on. And I mean, now that we have Smartfella, we have a team we have like a web person and we have a marketing people like we have, you know, people around that stuff now, but up until then, up until six months ago, it was really just us. So, oh no, we had, um, we had Zoe, we had Zoe Lee who was a, a, our web person and um, she did merge for us as well, but yeah, it was really us. So and we work out of Castaway Studios a lot in Collingwood, which is awesome. Derek has been a sort of jack of all trades for us, but, so we've had a lot of great people around us, but yeah, it's it's been a ride and it's been fabulous. And we've got great listeners. We've just got this great community around us of listeners. It's so it's, but that's podcasting, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's really cool.
0: So the business model—you have some advertising. You um, you say at the start of the podcast every episode we don't have. Uh, network overlord um so you you like the idea of being independent i gather
1: i do (laughs) i do having worked in radio for such a long time i mean it's so great there's no editorial policy apart from ours Mm. there's no i think you have to have worked in that environment and which is great you know i'm not shit canning it because it's where i learned everything i know but you have to have worked in that environment to appreciate not being in that environment and um yeah, it's wonderful. It's I, I don't have a boss. I am the boss. <laughs> it's amazing.
0: The I don't think the podcaster is, puts itself into podcast ranker. No. No. Or would you?
1: What even is that?
0: So, I mean, so. it's
1: hilarious. It makes me laugh. It, I mean, I'm like, what? What is that? What is that? Right. What is it? Can you explain it to me? What is it?
0: Well, let's suppose I mean it doesn't give you exact numbers, but it ranks the the what. It, well, the popularity
1: of, of what compared of- to what <laughs> isn't that Apple charts? Like, what of what?
0: Well, it's separate to the Apple charts, I guess.
1: Yeah, well, exactly. So, the popularity of what? I mean, why is it so different? Like, I don't so understand. You so, I guess
0: it's supposed to be useful for advertising sales. So
1: yeah, for advertising sales for SCA. Like, doesn't it just rank their podcasts? No, no, I rank.
0: Well, I- ARN's in there with all their stuff.
1: Oh, right.
0: Um, I think Nova's stuff's in there. ACAST isn't in there.
1: No, because isn't it just um, radio stations? Just I think it's just like oh, I don't even know what it is or care. Yeah,
0: but you don't, got, it doesn't, as far as you're concerned, it's not going to help you commercially to be in there.
1: Mate, I don't need any help commercially. This is the <laughs> other issue. It's like whenever the, oh, God, I don't even want to get into uh, Sometimes I, I'm approached by other. like I'm just, I'm just very happy with Acast, and whenever I'm approached by the uh, other sort of entities, and we start talking, kicking around numbers, I just go, "Oh God, you have no idea. You just have no idea what we're doing over here. Like, I'm I'm writing a lot of revenue where I am, mm-hmm. and." They, I don't know. I don't know what they're doing. I
0: just don't know how. Yeah. Does someone sell that for you? Do you have your own?
1: No, they do it oh, all. So- they do it all, and um, and they're great. And I'm very happy where I am.
0: So when you say they, who does your site? So, oh, so Acast monetize yeah. your? Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I don't even understand, and I don't even understand the process in other places where they are like piloting podcasts for a year or something. I'm like. It's not a breakfast radio show. What are you on about? Just <laughs> stick it on. Just upload it. Like, what are you doing?
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: bizarre to me. It's just uh, really bizarre.
0: And a lot of people would have just found yours organically.
1: Totally. Word of mouth. and. We never advertised. We didn't do. Emily and I didn't know how to. We didn't know how many listeners we had for at least a year and a half. We didn't know how to find out. We didn't know where you find out how many Downloads you have,
0: yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Didn't know, no, oh, amazing, amazing. Um, radio. Now you did a bit of guest radio breakfast this year, didn't you?
1: I did. You I did. filled in for so, Jade
0: Noura. I think. No, no, where?
1: it was uh, um, um it somewhere um, in
0: New South Wales, wasn't it? Regional. Wollongong. Wollongong, right? Okay.
1: Yeah, with Damien Leith and yeah. um straight Yeah, yeah. I did it from here, from my walking yeah. wardrobe. Yeah. But um. And it was it was they're beautiful, beautiful, beautiful guys. Um, but God, I can I, breakfast radio, God, I can never do it again. you never take a break would be my advice. I just said that yesterday to um <laughs> to somebody in Brisbane. Um I was like, God, it's it's so exhausting. I thought, how can you mm. how did I ever do this? I was crawling. <laughs> I was but I did it with Ryan Rathbone, you know, runs the Grant Network. You're a big fan he, of
0: Ryan's, aren't you?
1: Oh, he's my favorite, favorite yeah. boss. So um, he asked me to do, it. I said, sure. Anything, but God, hard, hard work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I never do it again. <laughs> so so- you never be tempted by crazy money to do. You,
1: no, it? God, no. As no. I say, you know, I'm making enough money to live a nice life now. Uh, no, I don't need any more money. Um, and certainly not for that.
0: Yeah. No. And what, what about TV stuff? Do we, do you still appear on the the project, sometimes. No, no,
1: no. It's done. And, yeah, it's done. And again, it, you know, it would depend on um on what it was. There's nothing on television now that I would want to be on. Yeah. But then you know, I don't know. It just would depend on what it what it was. And the same with radio. You know, like this week, I the other day I was in a studio with Mick Malloy again, and I was like, oh god, how fun is this? <laughs> You know, um, it would depend. There, there could be scenarios that you just could never knock back, but uh, but I don't think any of them begin at 6am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. All righty. Look, it's been great uh, talking to you today. Thank, Thank you for you. your time. The book is CSI Told You Lies. The publisher is Penguin mm. and it's out now. Have you mapped out any idea for a, for your next book at all or
1: yes yep you know? yep we've got a few on the go yes i mean it's this is it it's um so exciting and i and i do love it i love writing and yeah i'm quite inspired and um now that it's a more now that it's a sort of very real option yes there's there's a few things on the go and and other things have sort of started to come out of this book as well so yeah yeah i think I'm about to start work on a few extra yeah. things.
0: Yeah, Great. All right, Michelle, thanks for talking to me anyway.
1: Oh, hopefully it'll bump me up, Ranker. <laughs> <laughs>